0: The unique opportunity this morning to talk about um, uh, this idea of what are the guiding principles uh, by which we live our lives and by which we make decisions. And so, when we come up to a decision and there's something going on in our life and we have to make a choice, what are the what are the checkbox list of things that we go through to decide? Yes, the answer the answer is yes, or the answer is no. How do we how do we kind of walk through that in our minds? And so, to kind of put us in that mindset this morning, I wanted to begin. Uh, just by thinking about if we were all to go out to lunch after church this morning and uh, and if we were to go, and I'm not inviting you guys, so don't uh, think <laughs> that that's what's going on here, but if, what if we went to the Cheesecake Factory? And if you guys have been there, you know that their menu is like, it's like a small novel, right? It's like uh, you open it up and somebody's like, hey, what are you going to have? And you're like, I don't know. I haven't made it past the advertisements yet. I'm not even, I haven't even made it to any food yet. You're flipping through. And then once you get to the food, there are so many options. If you want breakfast, if you want dinner, if you want Southwest, if you want Northeast, it doesn't matter. They've got it all in there. And so every one of us would probably order some unique, slightly different combination of things on that menu uh, when we went in there. And so what is it that would lead us to make that choice? If you're if you're veering towards low calorie, there's a certain section of the menu you're going to look and say, hey, I just want to go low-cal, right? There's other people that are, that are anti-carb, and so they don't care what else is happening as long as there's no carbs. So stick away from the bread and pasta, but everything else is wide open, right? There might be people that are vegan, and so they say, I don't want anything that, a, that an animal even looked at or sniffed, right? If, it, if an animal was near it, I don't want to touch it. I don't want anything to do with it. There are, uh, there's other people that might come in and they might say, hey, I'm on this, uh, I'm on this uh, red meat diet, so just give me like three steaks, like no sides, nothing else, I just want a couple steaks like stacked on top of each other. You might do it based on taste, like I just want the thing that's going to taste the best. You might do it based on price. Uh, this is what I do when we go to Olive Garden, which... Members of my family like to go. I don't like to go to Olive Garden. It's not, it's not, we'll get to that in a minute here. This is another principle of mine. But uh, when I go to Olive Garden, I always get the soup and salad because it's the cheapest thing and it's unlimited. So if I'm enjoying it that day, I can keep eating it, right? But, but I, I, just, I just want the cheapest thing that they've got on the menu. For some people, it's a prestige thing, right? Like, what's the most expensive thing you have? I'll take your finest bottle of wine and your aged steak, right? Like, you just want to go uh, just because it says something about you that you can order the most expensive item. Or, or ladies, if you're out on a date with a guy and you're like, this is probably like a one-time deal. We're not going <laughs> to re-up, so I'm going to get the most out of this that I can on this one, right? So, like, uh, just, or if, uh, or if you have a boyfriend and he's done something wrong and you want to really stick it to him, right? Like, you might go for the most expensive thing. Another one of my guiding principles, uh, and this is why I don't like the Olive Garden, is I don't like to get something that I could make at home. If I could just make it at home, why am I going to go out to a restaurant and pay somebody to do it, right? So so I don't like to eat pasta at restaurants. Uh, that leads me to, like, barbecue and sushi, right? Because I'm not smoking meats for, like, 12 hours uh, in my in my backyard. And so when I go to get barbecue, I like that. Or sushi, you know, I'm not going to get fresh fish and chop it up and the sticky rice. And it's just too much of a process. So when I go, I like to order things that I couldn't make at home. Uh, you might... You want to save room for dessert, you might want to skip dessert, you might get an appetizer. And so I could go on and on and on, right? There's a million different ways. But you, each one of us, as I'm talking about this, you're probably thinking about like, okay, th- yeah, this is my checklist, you know, or I have a, a food allergy, so I can't have this, that, and whatever. But every one of us has this unique kind of thing that when we open up the menu, we're in the exact same situation. It's lunchtime, here's a menu, go. We're all going to land at different spots based on the parameters that we've set up, these, these sort of guidelines that we have in our mind. Now, what you eat for lunch today it's probably not going to change the whole course of your life unless you're, like, allergic to shellfish and you go eat, <laughs> eat seafood and you end up in the hospital. That might change the course of your life. But otherwise, it's just, it's just a meal, right? But there's other decisions in our life that are super important. It makes a really big difference, and it's really important that we make the right choice because we don't know what that decision is going to unlock for us going forward. And that's exactly where we find Boaz in this story. He's at a point where he has been presented with a choice he's been presented with a choice, and there's another guy, a nearer relative to Ruth and Naomi, who's also been presented with the same choice, and they make two completely different choices on what to do with it. Same situation, same risks, same rewards, and yet they view the situation differently. And so I was intrigued as I looked at it this week, what made one guy say no and one guy say yes? What was the difference there? And so that's what we're going to be exploring today. What are what are the biblical guiding principles when we come to things like, how do we view things from God's perspective? How do we make the right choice based on what he would lay out for us? So if you guys will join me, let's uh, let's join in a word of prayer. Let's just prepare our hearts and uh, and, and come into this hungry for, for God to teach us. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we had the story of Ruth uh, and Naomi and Boaz and that we can look at what they do, not just as examples to follow or, or not to follow, but but they're a picture of, of you and your heart and how you interact with us in the world and how you desire for us to live. And so I would just pray that as we come, we would come with open hearts today, that you would speak to us, you could uh, encourage and inspire and convict and lead, and uh, that we would come out changed and transformed in different people and that we would go forward better prepared uh, to serve and honor and glorify you in this world. And I pray that's in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I know that I recognize that we're kind of coming in. Uh, it's, it's summertime. People have been on vacation. Some of you have been faithfully here every week of this series. Some of you have missed it. Some of you are visiting with us the first time today and don't even know who Ruth and Boaz are, and so you don't know what I'm talking about yet. Uh, so let's get real quickly just a, a Cliff Notes version to get us all on the same page of where we're at in this story. Uh, there, was a, there was a lady named Naomi. She was married to a guy named Elimelech, and they were uh, Jews. They were part of God's people living in the Promised Land, but a famine came and so uh, they decided their best option to preserve the family was to go to a foreign land, Moab, and sojourn there uh, just for, for practical reasons, to get food. And so they're there with their two sons. Their two sons, they're there for, for many years, more than 10 years. Uh, their sons marry women from this foreign land. And then, we're not told why, but the husband and both sons die. And so Na- Naomi is left as a widow with her two daughter-in-laws. And, uh, and she says, man, God has left me. He's abandoned. He's left the building. Girls, you should get out while you can. Marry some other guys. Write a different story. Just go do your thing. And they're both like, no, we're going to stick with you. Uh, One's named Ruth. The other one's named Orpah. And so uh, they come, and they say, no, we're going to stick with you. And then Naomi says, no, 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 let me give you the hard sell. Let me show you where this is headed. This is death, destruction. There's no hope. There's no future for you. You don't want to go with me. And Orpah tearfully says, yeah, you know what? You're right. That's that's logical. That's rational. Yeah, I'm going to leave. And she goes. But Ruth says, no. She says, we're family we're sticking together. I am not leaving you. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you go is where I'm going to go, and I'm going to stick with you no matter what. And so they go together. They come back to God's land. It's the time of harvest. Naomi continues in her lament, but Ruth rolls up her sleeves and says, I'm going to go out in the field, and I'm going to get us something to eat. We're hungry. We need food. I'm going to go get some food. And so she goes. She works diligently, and we see how God arranged their path so that she ends up in the field of one of their relatives, Boaz. And he comes along and he says, hey, who's this girl? And he hears the story about how she's loved Naomi so well, how she's working hard from morning till night gathering it. And he says, hey, listen, this place is dangerous. I want you to stay in my field, stay with my people. We'll watch out for you. We'll protect you. He gives her gifts of grain uh, to eat. And he tells his workers, like, hey, leave some extra for her. Make sure." He's impressed by her character and what she's done, and he wants to be a part of that story. He says, I love what this girl's doing. I love how she's honoring God with her life, and I want to be involved. He's pulled into the story. So they go through the whole time of harvest. And after a while, Naomi says to Ruth, like, hey, there's this rule back here in Israel where if someone dies, it's up to the next of kin to come and provide an heir and redeem the land. And, and, and Boaz is in line. He's one of our relatives. So you should go to him and ask him to marry you and ask him to fulfill this role. And so they come up with this plan. Ruth goes bravely and boldly and obediently and does it. And uh, she asks Boaz, and it's the kind of the climax of the whole story. And Boaz says, man, this is awesome. Yeah, I want to do this, but... And there's always a but in any good story, right? And so he says, but there's a closer redeemer. I'm not, I'm, I'm not the closest kinsman. According to the law, there's somebody who has rights before me. And so I'm going to go to him. If he wants to claim the right of redemption, he can do it. He can marry you. He can do this. If he doesn't want to do it, I'm going to do it. So from a practical standpoint, we would look at this and be like, wow, this is a win-win for Ruth. No matter what, she's done. She's taken care of, right? Like she's going to be provided for. It's going to be good. But as listeners in the story, we're like, oh, no, no, not some other dude. We want Boaz. He's the guy. He's, he's the guy we want her to end up with. We don't want some other guy. And so he goes to the city gate. He calls the other guy in, and he calls uh, 10 elders of the, of the community to come and sit down. And so the, this takes this on a formal kind of procedure. It's a legal setting. And then he says, hey, uh, Naomi's back in town. She's got a piece of land from her dead husband. You're first in line to get it. If you don't do it, I'm going to do it. Do you want this piece of land? And he's like, yep, I'm going to take it. <laughs> it sounds good. Like uh, Because Naomi was older. He's like, she's going to die, and then the land is just going to be mine forever. Uh, but Boaz says, hey, hold on a second. Actually, if you take the land, also it also comes with it. you got to take care of Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And, uh, and you'd have to provide Ruth an heir. And so it, suddenly it changes the whole landscape of the situation where now all of a sudden this is going to cost him something. He's got two more mouths to feed. He's going to take on this land, but if he produces an heir, when that child gets old enough, that child is going to take that land, and he's actually going to end up with less in the end than what he started with. And so he looks at it, he's like, no, no, this is going to impair my inheritance. I, I can't do it. You go ahead and do it. I, I relinquish my rights. And so that's where we pick up the story, right here in the midst of this conversation. And so we're in Ruth chapter 4. Uh, we're looking at verse 7. If you got your Bible, you can turn there, or else it'll be up here on the screen. But he says this, now this was the custom... In former times in Israel, concerning a redeeming and, ex- er, redeeming and exchanging, to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So let's pause there for a minute. It's it's kind of a weird thing. And in the kid packets that we gave today, there's like little coloring pictures of two guys, like one guy handing another guy a shoe, right? And so up to this point, that probably made no sense to the kids. They're like, this is a weird. (laughs) The Bible's weird. I didn't know it was this weird, right? Um, And so you think, why didn't the narrator just leave that detail out? Why was that necessary to include this whole description of the process? Well, imagine a time into the future where when people get married, they no longer exchange rings. And so maybe in the future, they just kind of, they, do, they have a different way of doing it or whatever. But if you were trying to explain a marriage back in this time, you would say, hey, then they gathered all their family and their friends, and they had a big, uh, a big formal celebration, and they made vows to each other, and then they took rings, costly rings that they had bought, and they gave them to each other, and they slid them onto their fingers. Like, you feel the gravity of the situation, right? It's a ceremony. It's important. It's significant. This means that when this is done, when he takes off his sandal and he hands it to the other guy. Here, Kevin, you no, I'm just kidding. Um... Uh, when, when he does this, that it's, there's no take-backs. He's not going to wake up tomorrow and be like, hey, I rethought that deal. Uh, I changed my mind. I, I want my shoe back. Like uh, I'm going to do it, right? Once this is done, it's official and it's final. And that's, that's significant. It's important. It gives gravity to this moment. So it continues on in verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilean and Malon, Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate, and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, Tomorrow, bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so <clears throat> something pretty awesome happens here. They go through this transaction, and the community rejoices. They celebrate. They're like, this is awesome. This is great. Boaz, you've done a good thing. And we welcome Ruth in. We accept her as one of our people. Like, she was a Moabite, but you're going to marry her, and now she's going to be part of the nation of Israel. And we're, we're praying and asking that God would bless you with a long line of, of continuing in the line of Israel. They're welcoming her into community and they celebrate with them what has gone on here. And so this brings us up to date to the question that I began with this morning. Why did Boaz say yes when the other guy said no? What was it? And what, it, what I see in here, what it, what it drives us to is that, that Boaz had the perspective. He understood that he valued the greater good, the good of the community, over his own individualistic advancement. That he valued the greater good, the story that God was working, the communal benefit that could happen, Rather than just what would benefit him individually by himself. <laughs> and there's this, this really cool parallel between what I told you in the beginning. Remember, Orpah and Ruth had a very similar decision. They both had a choice to make. There was something that was rational and logical, and if you added up and did the math, what Orpah did made more sense. There was more probability that that was going to turn out good for her in the long run, but Ruth made the choice. The honored and valued community and family and relationship and benefited someone else, even though it cost her something. And the same thing happens here with Boaz. That's why they're such a great pair, right? That Boaz says, No, I value community, that that the advancement of the community, the advancement of what God is doing in this situation is more important than my own personal gain or loss here. Part of this is hard for us to grab because uh we're such an individualistic society in america right when you talk to somebody when you meet somebody and, and you speak to them how often does it come up oh yeah this is this is who my father was and this is who my grandfather was and we don't talk about family lineage very often right unless we had an ancestor on the mayflower or unless we have uh somebody who in our family who was a signer of the declaration of independence we might like toss that out as currency in conversation like hey just so you know right but other than that Ancestry is kind of like a hobby, right? Like Some people will get into that, and they'll study it and stuff, and it's it's kind of, oh, wow, listen, this person did this. But it's not something that identifies us. It's not something that we lead with in conversation. But in this time, lineage and and ancestry was super important, and we kind of miss out on that. We get a picture of this in the Lord of the Rings. You guys watch the Lord of the Rings movies, you know, and uh, and The Hobbit and all that stuff, and, and somebody will come up, and it's never like, oh, yeah, hey, my name's Strider, right? Like It's like, I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, king, right? You know, or you got Thorin, son of Thrain, the king under the mountain, the legacy of the dwarves of the, you know, and you're like, man, I didn't even catch half of that, but I'll take your word for it, right? But they understood that they were in a line, that there was a great-grandfather and a grandfather and a father, and now them, and then they're going to have somebody after them, and they're, they're a link in a chain that's establishing something greater than their own individual life. So much of our life is just geared towards what's going to help me here and now? What's, what's the thing that's going to benefit me in this moment? one of the things that was in the news this, this week or in the past couple of weeks, right, has been the whole hacking of this. Uh, there's this website that was set up uh, for people to, like, arrange to have affairs with each other, right? And wildly popular, like crazy, right, that this thing even exists. But even beyond that, that people will pay a lot of money to have a membership in it and then do it. And so these hackers hacked in and they blew open the database and started releasing publicly the names of all the people that are in this database, right? And to me, it's, like, one of the greatest hacking moves that's ever happened. But... Uh, you know, it's like if I was going to hack something, that's probably what I would do, but I have no hacking skills. Uh, but it's amazing to see the names that have come out, and, and all these decisions that have been made, and this is not a new problem, right? This has been something that's been throughout history, has been an issue and an epidemic, but um, but talk about a decision that is geared solely towards personal fulfillment, right? Just personally, and, and it's pseudo-fulfillment. You think it's going to fulfill you, but the reality is, is it doesn't. The reality is, that it leaves you more empty than when you went, went there in the first place, and And there's a whole website, and there's a whole industry, and people are making millions and millions of dollars on facilitating this this, this selfish, self-centered, really small vision kind of thing. But what God pushes us towards, what Boaz understood, is that his decision had ripples and implications throughout the lives of many, many people in his community and around him and and everywhere, and that that his decision was important. So I ask you today... How do you think about legacy? How do you think about the things that you're doing, how it's going to affect those going forward? If you have children, how do your decisions affect the way that your children are going to grow up and the decisions they're making, the kind of people they're going to become? If you don't have children, uh, if you're not married or, or you don't have kids or, or whatever, it, it's not like uh, you still have an incredible legacy, that you can make a difference in people's lives, that, that if you were to die today, what impact would that have? What vacuum and hole would that leave in your community and your society? Are you a, a Mr. Miyagi for a Danielson out there, right? Like, have you, uh, are you investing in other people in such a way that you're creating an ongoing legacy uh, that will live beyond you? Do you think about it that way, or do you think just, what's going to get me by this week? How am I going to get through the day? How can, I, how can I just focus inwardly? I've dealt with this with my with my kids. It's one of the things that I've studied. It's become more and more clear that, that part of the challenge, uh, a common scene in our house is that uh, our 10-year-old daughter, Emma, and our, Our four-year-old Eloise, uh, they like to play with a neighbor girl who's like six or seven. And they all go out, and little by little, every toy that was in our house makes its way out into our driveway until it's like this crazy uh, scene out there. But Emma is smart. Emma only takes a few toys out. And so she'll go. She'll take her four or five toys out. And when I'm like, all right, kids, time to clean up, time to come in, Emma will go and identify the four or five toys she took out. She'll take them inside. She'll sit them down, and she'll go over and sit down and start watching TV. And I'll be like, Emma, it's a mess out there. Go clean up. She's like, I didn't take those toys out there. I brought in the toys that I took out. And that's what's fair. Like, I brought this in, and I'm telling her, like, no, this is community. You all went out. You created a community there. You played together. You enjoyed it together. And now you all clean up together until the work is done. And when the work is done, then you all are released. She's like, well, that's not fair. And I always tell her, I was like, life's not fair. That one never works for I'm like, bingo. You figured it out. Life is not fair. Can you grab me that water bottle that's right there? I'm getting all choked up here. Um, so it's not about fair, right? If it was fair, the same thing happened the other, uh, we were out somewhere at a, at a public swimming place and Emma left her flip-flops somewhere. And Trina was like, Emma, where's your flip-flops? And she's like, oh, I, I don't know, where, where are they? I, I didn't get them. And she's like, mom, did you grab them? And Trina's like, they're not my flip-flops, right? But she had grabbed them because <laughs> she understood community, that family is community, right? When somebody leaves something behind, you're like, okay, we're all responsible for all of this. And so how does that filter into your way of thinking? And the reality is this is not something that comes naturally to us it's something that we have to work through and and i see that in my kids my kids don't naturally gravitate towards biblical community they gravitate towards selfishness and this is what's fair and this is what's right in my own world but but we have to train and teach them to embrace community and for us as i'm telling her this i'm convicted in my own mind of, wow where am i living this out in my own life where i am as an adult being selfish i'm basically saying hey i got my toys i don't know whose mess that is but that wasn't mine right when really as part of the community. It's my job to be a part of cleaning it up. This this transcends into the church really well as well, right? Like, we, we come to this church. We're a body together. Some some are visiting here, and we're glad you're here visiting, and we're so glad you're here. Some are, are here trying to figure out. You're like, yeah, I've heard some things. I have some religious baggage. I'm trying to figure out if if this relationship with Jesus is the real deal or not, and so for you, I say, welcome. I'm glad. That's the whole reason we're here is to help explore that and look at that. But, but for those who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, Riverside is the church where I go. If somebody asks you on the street, where do you, oh yeah, I go to Riverside. I would ask you, how are you investing into the community in a way that doesn't personally benefit you? Is, are, you are you making an investment in the community so that this can happen? The only reason this can happen right now is because there's, there's workers down there that are, that are sitting with the babies. And, and the young kids so that they're not running around here in the sanctuary right now. We, we came into coffee and donuts and all that stuff because somebody came in super early and fired up the coffee pots and made it. Uh, somebody helped you park your car. All these things happen, and it's all an investment in community. I, I, I was thinking about this earlier. One of the guys who does parking ministry is Ray Layton, who lives like two houses down. He doesn't even ever drive to church, but he's volunteered to come over and help park cars. There's no benefit to him. It's not like, well, I'll park a guy this week, but he's going to help me next week. He, he does it to invest in biblical community. Some of the people that make coffee for us downstairs don't drink coffee, right? But they do it to invest invest in others. And so I want to encourage you and challenge you. And I know that personal invitation is always the greatest way to get people involved. But I want to challenge you from the pulpit here this morning. Is there a way that you're investing in this community so that this thing can not just be maintained but so that this thing can grow? So that there's space for others to come in and hear about Jesus. And so that a single mom in the community can come in and, and she can know exactly where to park her car. And somebody can watch her kids for a few minutes. And she can uh, have a few moments of serenity where she can drink a cup of coffee and come up here and sit and listen to what the Bible says about how to live your life. Uh, are we willing to create that space for that person in this community? Are we willing to invest in that kind of way? And so I want to challenge each one of you to think about if you're, if you're not involved with service here at the church, there's so many opportunities the fall always presents this, this unique opportunity where people have kind of drifted out over the summer. Sometimes people move away. Sometimes people's life situation changes whatever, and so we lose some volunteers, but people aren't usually coming in the depth of the summer and say, hey, I know there's not much going on right now, but I want in. I want to serve, right? And so we come up against this, this thing every fall where it's time to, to invite new people into ministry, and I don't even want to call it volunteering. It's, it's becoming part of community. It's becoming part of service. So I want to encourage you that if God's laid it on your heart, right after the service today, we're having a meeting with our children's workers, and if that's something you want to jump in on, we invite you to that meeting, or if God's calling you to something else, to shake a hand on the way in the door, to greet, to park, whatever. Um, not just to fill holes in our organization, but to invite you into community and to invite you to do something unselfish and other-centered for the benefit of others. The other cool thing that happens when you begin to look at it this way is that you develop this mindset that that starts to see instead of seeing the personal risk and reward, you begin to see the bigger picture. The, broader blessing rather than the narrow blessing. Instead of just focusing on, how does this affect me? How will this impact me? You begin to say, how does this choice that I'm making impact my community? Impact my family? Impact my church? Impact my neighborhood? Impact those around me? And it gives you a different way to look at it, and that's how uh, Ruth and Orpah could look at it and come to completely different conclusions. How Boaz and the, and the closer kinsmen could come at it and come to co- completely different conclusions, because the closer kinsmen said, hey, uh, I've run the risk-reward. There's not a very high potential reward and there's great potential of risk. Whereas Boaz said, hey, it's really not even all about that. If you look at verse 10, take a look at verse 10. What does it say? Why did he do what he did? It says, Also, Ruth the Moabite, the, Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. He basically says, hey, why am I doing this? Not because I see some potential of some reward from it. I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. Because one of our brothers has died, and if somebody doesn't do something, his name will, will cease to be remembered. His family will cease to exist. He'll just kind of dissipate into to history. But I think that his legacy is worth remembering. I think that he deserves somebody to stand in his place. And I'm going to do that, and it might be a loss for me personally. I might. And he counted the cost. He knew what it was going to cost. He didn't do it flippantly. He said, no, no, I— I know what this is going to cost, but I'm willing to do it. It may benefit me, it may cost me, but that's not why I'm deciding. I'm deciding based on the benefits of the community, the greater good that God has called me to do here. I want to show you a cool uh, example of this uh, with a with a brief clip that I want to show you this morning. Is out of the movie Braveheart. Many of you have seen this movie. Um, although I haven't seen it in years and years, and I started thinking about it again, but William Wallace is is fighting to free the Scottish people from the oppressive English monarchs that are ruling over them unfairly, and so he's waging this 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 battle with these ragtag farmers and villagers that are that are going up against these armed soldiers, and so Robert the Bruce is a is a Scottish noble, and uh, as a as a man from Scotland, he should. He should join with his fellow Scots to fight against the English, but he looks at it from that narrow perspective and says, what's going to give me the best benefit? There's a lot of risk with joining with these guys. They don't even have an army. Uh, There's much greater potential reward. If I side with England, then I can advance my position, and so with his father plotting with him, he decides to betray William Wallace and fight him, and so they go into this battle, and he betrays him, and he's masked, and, and suddenly... William Wallace unmasks him and is ready to kill him, but when he sees who it is, he's so taken aback that he he stumbles backward and he drops the knife and tears well up in his eyes, and he's so cut to the heart. It's like someone ripped his heart out. He can't believe that his fellow countrymen would betray him in this way. It just guts him. And Robert the Bruce is is so affected by this, and then he walks the battlefield and sees his countrymen laying there, bloody and dead, and he goes to confront his father about what this has taught him in his heart. Let's take a look at what happens. I am the one who's rotting, but I think your face looks graver than mine, son. We must have alliance with England to prevail here. You achieved that. You saved your family, increased your land. In time, you will have all the power in Scotland. Lands, titles, men, power, nothing. Nothing? I have nothing. When fight for me. Because if they do not, I throw them off my land and I starve their wives and their children. Those men who bled the ground red at Falkirk, they fought for William Wallace and he fights for something that I've never had. And I took it from him when I betrayed him and I saw it in his face on the battlefield. And it's tearing me apart. All men betray. All lose heart. I don't want to lose heart! I want to believe as he does. I will never be on the wrong side again. You know, what a powerful scene. He says, "Lands, men, titles, power, nothing." So what? So by the w- world's scorecard, we advanced our family. We went forward. But in my heart, I know I took a giant step backward because I, I abandoned community. I made a selfish move that destroyed this beautiful thing. He says, "All men betray." All men lose heart. He said, like, "I don't want to lose heart, right?" That's the reality that all men do betray. All men lose heart. That we all are broken by sin. And the community got this. Listen, listen to their response. It's fascinating when the community hears what happens. They're they're like, "Man, this is awesome! What you did, Boaz." And we and we pray blessings over you. The blessing of Rachel and Leah. The the blessing of Perez and Tamar. And it sounds beautiful until you start looking into those stories, and you get to see how messed up it's kind of like, wait a minute, was that a backhanded compliment? Like, what, what did you just wish upon my family? I don't know that I wanted that, right? Because uh, some of you know the story of Rachel. and Jacob uh, went and worked for this man uh, who was a distant relative, and he, and he said, and he said, hey, what, what, you've done such great work for me. How can I reward you? And he said, I'll work seven years if I can marry your younger daughter, Rachel, because she's beautiful, and she's awesome, and I'm in love with her, and I, I want to be with her and he said, okay, that sounds like a good deal. So he worked for seven years, and it says he was so in love, it was like a day. It went by. And then on his wedding night, father pulls the old switcheroo and gives him the older daughter, Leah, the undesirable one, and gives, it, gives him her as the, as the wife instead. And so he wakes up the next morning and is totally shocked and surprised. And the Bible doesn't go into details of how all this unfolded, so we'll just have to figure that out, right? But, uh, but he says, hey, you tricked me. And he said, hey, well, I couldn't give you the younger daughter. The older one has to marry first. That's just how we do it around here. But, but you can have the younger one, too. Uh, You just got to work for seven more years. And so he works for seven more years. And so imagine this scenario. Being married to two sisters, one of them knows that you never wanted to marry her in the first place. (laughs) The other one knows that you're madly in love, And so there's this incredible family tension. And so uh, this crazy thing happens. Listen to what it says in Genesis 29. It says, uh, When the Lord saw that Leah, the older, was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction... For now, my husband will love me. Apparently it didn't happen because she said, and then she conceived again and she bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And She called his name Simeon. And then again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Apparently it still didn't work, right? Because therefore, it says, therefore his name was called Levi. And then she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing, right? She's like, say, man, finally, if I have three sons for this guy, eventually he's going to fall in love with me. And finally she just gave up and said, all right, I'm just going to praise God that he's given me four sons. I don't know what else to do, right? It's, it's a dysfunctional, messed up family situation. And yet they say, hey, we want you to have the blessing because God took that dysfunctional, messed up family and he made a nation out of that. This son Judah went on. He, he went to Canaan. He married a Canaanite woman and he had sons. Uh, the oldest son, Ur, married this girl, Tamar, uh, but he was wicked, and he died. And so in the same way uh, that uh, J- uh, Judah said, hey, there's a kinsman thing going on here, Onan, his younger brother, he said, hey, you need to go and provide an heir for your brother so his line doesn't end. You need to provide an heir for him. But, but Onan twisted the situation in such a way that he got what he wanted out of the relationship, but he didn't produce an heir. And so God saw that as wicked, and he died too. So then Judah said, hey, there's a younger son, but he's too young to marry. So wait till he gets old enough, and then I'll give him to you. But secretly, he withheld him because he's like, well, I don't want him to marry because he's going to die too. So, so he held him back, and Tamar saw what was going on, and so she tricked Judah into producing an heir. And I'll just leave it at that with all the kids in here. But this is more messed up than you guys could possibly imagine. Any Jerry Springer or any kind of weird—if if it was a movie, you would get up and walk out. You'd be like, this is ridiculous. Nothing is that messed up. But this is how messed up it was. And this was the story of their family line, this village uh, full of people. They're like, hey, this is our ancestors. Um, But God redeemed that mess. That's what I want to share with you today. Whatever your situation is, whatever's going on, whatever you've been through, whatever you've done, whatever's going on in your marriage or, or your relationship or your life right now, no matter how messed up it might be, God can redeem it. God can turn it into something beautiful that glorifies him, that becomes a testimony to his greatness, that benefits the community and leaves a legacy of godliness for years to come. If you're willing, like Robert the Bruce, to kind of come to that moment of repentance and say, all that stuff is nothing. I want to believe. I don't want to be on the wrong side anymore. I want to be under God. I want want Jesus to stand as my Lord and my Savior. I believe, I have a hope that he can redeem even this messed up situation that I've made. And I have a hope that he can write a great legacy through me, not because of my goodness, but despite of my brokenness. And we see the greatest example of this in Jesus, that he came and he didn't look at the narrow blessing. Satan tempted him with that, right? Satan said, bow down to me and I'll give you all the nations of the world. I'll give you all these things. And Jesus said, no, no, it's not about the narrow blessing for me. It's about the greater blessing for all people. And so he gave his life. He sacrificed everything so that we could be adopted into the family, so we could become sons and daughters of God, so that we could become part of his family. He sacrificed the narrow blessing for the greater blessing. And, and think about this, this uh, when you talk about messed up relationships, the greatest marital mismatch, <laughs> the greatest messed up situation, more so than Rachel and Leah, uh, plus two servant girls that I didn't even mention, in that relationship, right? Uh, the, greater than, than Tamar and Judah, even more messed up and all that is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, the Son of God, and the church, his bride, full of rebellious, messed up, wayward, sinful people who, who didn't want him, who rejected him, who, who nailed him to a cross, and he said, that's who I'm going to marry, and I'm going to redeem them, and I'm going to make them beautiful. And as the church, we're told that's who we were, but that's not who we are. We've been transformed. He's renewing us. He's making us into his likeness, and it's said that he's going to present us as a perfect, and spotless bride to the Father. He's going to take our brokenness, and he's going to redeem it, and he's going to make us beautiful. Not because we are beautiful. We're not, we're not, he doesn't love us because we're beautiful. We're beautiful because he loved us, and he's redeeming us, and that's the beauty of the gospel. That's, that's what gives us hope. Now, Robert the Bruce said on there, he said, I will not be on the wrong side again, but if you guys watch the movie, (laughs) he ends up on the wrong side again. He ends up manipulated and twisted. It's not That simple, in our own power and strength, we can't just determine from today on, I'm only going to do the right thing. In our own strength and power, we will fail. But but through the righteousness of Jesus, when we accept what he did for us on the cross, he forgives all sin, past, present, and future. And his righteousness, his perfect righteousness is applied to us. And that's the hope that we have. And that's what leads us to be able to make decisions that benefit and bless our whole community and not just ourselves personally. And so I want to leave you with this challenge. Are you ready to enter into his story and allow your life to become a living testament to his greatness? Are you willing to live not for your own name, uh, your own bank account, your own legacy? Are you willing to live for the greater legacy, the, the legacy that Jesus wants to work in and through you, in your relationships, in your decisions, to glorify his name, to be a part of his great story, which will never end, which will be which will be told and sung about for all of eternity. Do you want to be a part of that, or do you want to remain in your own narrow, brief story that will come and go and end? And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you that, that if, if you've become distracted, if you've lost the plot, if, you, if, you, if you're not making decisions based on those things, I want to encourage you to, to prayerfully seek to do it. And it's a day-by-day thing. It's not like, okay, I decided to do it, I'm going to do it. It's every day you've got to work and say, hey, no, not what benefits me, but what benefits the greater good? What's, what's going to create greater community? And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you that today is the day that you can enter in. Just like that picture in that clip is the greatest picture that I've seen. Maybe not the greatest, but it's a great one of repentance. That's what repentance looks like. I've done it. I've evaluated it. It's nothing. All that sin, all that doing things my own way, I don't want it anymore. I reject it. And I want to do it God's way. I turn my back on that, and I turn to you, and I I believe, and I have a hope. I want to believe that you can forgive me. And the Bible promises us that he can.